Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is supported this week by Omeo. Omeo Omeo.com, a travel booking platform that makes it easy for you to plan a journey. You're ready for a vacation, right? You're tired of sitting on your couch, leaving that indentation in the cushions? Yeah, baby. Let's go to Europe. Let's go to North America. All over the place. It's effortless to get your travel details when you have Omeo. Magically going to show you train, bus, and flight and ferry options for your journey. It's never been simpler. Book a real vacation, baby. Book something. Come on. I dare you. Come on. Go. Go. Come on. Book it. Go. And (laughs) Omeo wants to really make it easy for you by saving you a little bit of cash. All you got to do, omeo.com and use the code OMIO5 at checkout. That's going to work for you until July 31st on all modes of transport. It's just the pick-me-up that you and the 2021 probably needs, right? Omeo, plan, book, and love the journey. Terms and conditions apply. Now, let's rock and roll. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. <laughs> the hottest button to button. Uh-oh, yeah. <laughs> the hottest button to button. Oh, yeah. Check one, two. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. We exist to... Uh, lay waste to the rumor in your window about your favorite bands and your favorite songs. Those things you've heard, you've never known if they were true. Well, we'll investigate for you. My name is Brian. And I am Murdoch. Hello. You can get involved in the show. We are the story guys at gmail.com. Send us an email. Let us know what you want us to figure out. And today, I want to start in a weird place. Are you cool with a weird place? I want to start in geography class. How are you with world geography? Man, we, we never had that class. And so it's I always I always wanna excel when I'm playing trivia. And then I hate when I uh, miss it. And then when we don't know, we just answer in Norway. That's we just do that. So if, if we were to throw down in a geography B right now, you think the money's on me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Is this just a Tennessee state curriculum in the eighties? They just didn't they didn't yeah. handle where things were other than where you could go to the football game and where you could see the statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Yeah, uh, which is, yeah, it's in my <laughs> county, dude. That's where they, they moved it. Okay, sure. so I... I but but, but oh, I do want to say, I did have to learn some some geography and trivia when I was in high school, so... Were you on, like, Trivia Bowl? We called it Scholars Bowl, sir, oh, but it's buddy. now Quick re- It's Quick Recall. Oh, it's, we so, never talked about this. Really? We've I, never we've talked never, about this. What? I thought for sure we've talked about this. So you, play, you were like a big Scholars Bowl guy? Dude, I went and played trivia with, with my next-door neighbor, Doctor, and we met another doctor, and, and like my neighbor is going to go pee, and like there was a category about like fictional mystery characters, and he was like, question one. And he was, and he was like, he, knew, he like got the whole category. And I said, quick recall, Scholars Bowl? And he's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, man, I'm just pick you know, pick you out of a crowd." So but yeah, we uh, we were state champs. Oh my two Lord. Of the Four years I was I was in I was in high school. So so maybe maybe you, the money shouldn't be on me. Maybe the money should be on you. Let's give this a shot. Have you ever heard of Tuva? Sometimes written and pronounced with a Y as Tiva. Tuva. Have you ever ever heard of that? Do you know no. where what it is? No. Okay. I don't know what that is. It, it's in far southern Siberia. It's the okay. geographical center of Asia. And, and as you might assume, because wow. it is Siberia, it gets very cold there, down to negative uh, 26 degrees Fahrenheit. Right now in the summer, it might be like 64 on a hot day. be pretty nice in the summer. 
Okay. It's home to about 300,000 people. And while it is Russian controlled, they have a native tongue called Tuvian. And they have a lot of history. Traditionally, the Tuvan people are yurt-dwelling nomads. Uh, but they have very distinctive traditions in cuisine and in folk art and in music. And this is a music podcast. So I want to talk about the music of Tuva. Do you, do you trust me? Because I know this doesn't seem like we're going somewhere that's going to end in rock and roll. But just I need you to trust me. Man, you've taken me some fabulous places. You explain what smoke in the water is about. I'm ready. I'm ready for you to tell me, tell me all about it. So this is this episode is going to be more in the vein of the smoke versus the water episode, in which we are going to talk about things that don't seem like they're necessarily related to. Uh, I don't know. I mean that that episode seemed related to rock and roll. We got to talk about the Stones a lot, but. Here we're going to talk about traditional Tuvan music for a few moments. And it, just trust me, it's very important. Tuvan music features something that has come to be known as Tuvan throat singing. And it works like this. The singer sings a fundamental tone and an overtone simultaneously. Do you want to hear what this sounds like? I, I really do. I'm, I'm curious. Yes, go. Okay, go. this is what that sounds like. That is Tuvan throat singing, and it's just a Google search or a YouTube video search away if you want to really dig into the culture of uh, the the Tuvan throat singing. Uh, but wow, right? Yeah, it's, it's kind of beautiful. Did it, you did you watch the the This Is Pop? episode about auto-tune no I, ha I haven't seen it with t-pain oh my god your brain's gonna explode it's fantastic it's got twists and turns and it's actually very beautiful and it's a wonderful thing but there's a man in it not to give this is this is just a minor part of that episode there's a man in it who's an artist um and he said the very first time that he heard auto-tune was in morocco Really? They, like they listened to lots of electronic music and there was lots of auto-tune vocals. And um he realized it sounded like the call to prayer. Yeah. And then and then they cut to the call to prayer, which happens like I guess like for the last thirteen hundred years in places, it happens five times a day where the call yep. to prayer happens. Yep. And it's where in auto-tune, there's like a note, like it kind of goes up to, there's a note going, it goes all the way up to the next note, and it comes back down. And like, that's what that knob is on the auto-tune thing. And and that is what makes that throat singing beautiful, too. It's it the has same that thing. Same... It's the tone and the overtone. That's what right. they do in auto-tune. Yeah, yep. man, I can't believe we're here. I, so, I, you know, it's it's appropriate that you move directly to a documentary. When we Because we've talked a lot about how much time you spend watching documentaries, so I need to know if you or anyone listening has heard of Tuva or Tuvan throat singing already. It's definitely because of a 1999 documentary called Genghis Blues. Have you ever heard of it or seen it? Yeah, that's a new one for me. Okay, so... Genghis Blues focuses on a guy named Paul Pina. In the last few days of 1984, 
Paul is messing around with a shortwave radio because he's trying to learn Korean. I do not understand why. He, wow. He thinks he can find a language lesson for some reason on shortwave radio. But what he instead hears is what you just heard or something wow. like it. He wow. hears he hears Tuvan throat singing on a Radio Moscow broadcast. Now, he doesn't really know what it is, but he's intrigued. And he's been... Uh, listening to this other thing right, right around the same time, he had, he had heard this interview with an English musician named Jill Perse. Have you ever heard of her? Yeah. She's pretty pretty interesting in her own right. But in short, in the 70s, she developed a new way of working with the voice that introduced the teaching of group overtone chanting. So this is kind of what we've been talking about. You produce a single note and you amplify vocal harmonics. Paul hears this interview and he wants to hear what this all sounds like. So he goes looking for a recording of her. So he's been developing this interest in non-American, very different ways of singing. So now is probably a good time to stop for a second and give you a little context. Let me okay. let you in a little bit on, on Paul. Paul is a musician. And he's been involved with slightly more traditional things throughout his life up to this point. But he was born in Massachusetts, and his grandparents were from the islands of Brava and Fogo in, in Cape Verde. And that's off the western coast of Africa. They immigrated to the U.S. in 1919. So he spoke Cape Verdean Creole with his family when he was growing up. Wow. His, his grandfather... And his father were both professional musicians, and they taught Paul to play Cape Verdean music, including a type of music called Morna. Now, Paul even performed professionally with his father, including a summer where he went to Spain and he went to Portugal and he studied flamenco. So this dude knows his way around tunes. Another thing you got to know about Paul, he was born with congenital glaucoma. That means wow. you aren't blind, but you lose your ability to see. By the time he was 20, Paul was completely blind. Yeah. What so, a drag. So here we are. Blind musician, interested in what he's hearing from Tuva on a shortwave radio, and his interest slowly grows. He starts digging through a stack of records at his local record store, and he's reminded of that night with a shortwave radio, and he finds this album, Tuva, Voices from the Center of Asia. Wow. And by his own accounts, Paul gets obsessed with this record. He uses the uh, word, in, in an interview, he uses the word continuously. He continuously listened to this record. He starts screwing around, and Murdoch, he figures out how to do it. He teaches himself the vocal technique that he needs to do traditional tube and throat singing. I wasn't expecting this to happen, so this is this is kind of fun. Okay, now, keep going. Remember, though, that I said Tuva is a language. Tuva has a native language, and Paul does not speak the language, so he can make the noise, but he has no idea what's happening on these records. And it turns out that nobody who speaks English speaks Tuvan, or at least not enough people to warrant a dictionary. But that doesn't stop Paul. The guy, wow. this is how obsessed this guy gets. In the mid-80s, he teaches himself Tuvan by using two dictionaries. Tuvan to Russian and then Russian to English. Man, what kind of madness is this he, guy? He gets this device called an oct Opticon, and he scans the pages and converts the printed words into tactile sensations so he can read in Braille. So oh, no, that's so crazy. Th this, oh my it's gosh. absolutely this story is absolutely nuts. So the journey so far, 
He's interested. He gets obsessed. He teaches himself the vocal technique. He teaches himself the language. If you're going to all that trouble, it seems like it only makes sense to publicly perform Tuvan throat singing, right? Like, why would you do all this if you're not going to perform? Or record it. Well, yeah. So he finds out that there is a throat singing uh, performance happening at the Asian Art Museum at in San Francisco. So now we're all the way to February of 1993. Oh my gosh. Okay. So this has been something that's been going on in his life for over 10 years. Or close to 10 years. There's a famous Tuvan throat singer there. And Paul, like, so that, like, imagine this. You're going to this museum. And there is a performance, and everyone's in the thing, and they're watching. Oh, look at this this person from another part of the world. He's come to show us this art, and oh, everyone claps. And Paul just like stands up, and he starts doing it too. <laughs> and, and let's just say, Tuvans are not used to being upstaged by black blind Americans. So <laughs> this famous Tuvan's like, dude, you got to come to Tuva. If you know how to do this, you got to come to the motherland. And that is how Paul ends up at the Second International Symposium in 1995 in Tuva with a documentary crew in tow. And he becomes the first Westerner to ever compete in this symposium. And he wins. He <laughs> wins. The audience, the people love him. They affectionately start to call him Cher Shimger, which means earthquake, because his voice is really deep. Like, typically, people in Tuva have a different register and it's higher so they haven't heard people doing tube and throat singing with such an actual low register oh, they have to mimic how it. great okay so this documentary about paul doing this wins at the 1999 sundance film festival and is nominated for an academy award in 2000 so i can't believe i have not seen this and now i'm really i can't excited. believe you haven't seen genghis blues either i thought i was like i was a little worried that you were gonna be like dude genghis blues is my favorite and uh <laughs> And then you would be telling me this story. So at this point, you might be wondering, Brian, what is happening right now? Like, world music is great, but this is a rock and roll podcast. Why did you just spend all this time talking to me about some dude who does Asian throat singing? Well, that's because I didn't tell you everything about Paul. I left out some stuff. I started Paul's story in 1984, and I called him a musician. But it might be more fair to say that Paul was a very frustrated musician. Quick reminder that the show today is brought to you by Omeo. Omeo, a travel booking platform that makes planning a journey in Europe and North America really easy. You put in your travel details, and then they magically give you the train, bus, and flight and ferry options that you need for your journey. Simple, simple, simple. And you know you're overdue for that vacation. So go ahead. Uh, Plus, Omeo really wants you to get out of the house right now. So they're going to give you a little cash back, make it a little cheaper for you when you go to omeo.com and use the code OMIO5, OMIO5 at checkout. That's going to work for you until July 31 on all new users on all modes of transport. Yeah, that's what you need, right? That's the pick-me-up you need. Omeo, plan, book, and love the journey. Terms and conditions apply. In 1984, Paul was 34 years old. And if you'd asked him, he probably would have told you that he was not a frustrated musician, but he might have introduced himself as a former musician. Because at that point, his history with playing music professionally, it had been going on for 15 years and it was at a pretty much at a dead stop. It, in February of 1969, a few days after he turned 19, so before he's even fully blind, Paul had a band and they were playing 
for a week at the Electric Factory in Philadelphia. And they were opening for Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention and the Grateful Dead. <laughs> Can you believe that we're back to Frank Zappa? Yeah, and, and, and the guy with the throat singing is is playing in maybe a hippie band. It's nineteen sixty nine. Okay. This so he great. Listen. What he, did he do in the what did he do in the band? Like, so what did he play? I believe he I believe he plays keys and guitar. I mean, he's a pretty accomplished musician. I'm not entirely sure what he plays in that band, but he performs in the Contemporary Composers Workshop at the Newport Folk Festival that same year. Now, I don't know if you keep the Newport Folk Festival history fresh in your head, but 1969 is the year that James Taylor debuted at the uh-huh. at the Newport Folk Festival, and okay. it's the year that Johnny Cash used his stage time to introduce this unknown kid that he liked named Chris Christopherson. <laughs> like, literally, that's what happened. He was like, hey, there's this guy you've never heard of. I wanted to come out and sing. Uh, so, so Paul gets gigs with the T-Bone Walker Blues Band, and he plays bass guitar and provides backup vocals on Bonnie Raitt's debut album. <laughs> wow. in, se- awesome. in 71, he moves to San Francisco, and he gets gigs opening for Jerry because he's been playing with Jerry Garcia. He gets to play with Jerry Garcia and Merle Saunders at the Keystone in Berkeley and other area clubs. And so for the next three years, this is his thing. He's, he's playing clubs in San Fran. And then, wow. he, then he, gets, he gets to do something that you and I can relate to, given our former uh, occupation. He, he enters a radio contest. <laughs> Back when radio contests were, got Word. you more than like a coupon book to Wendy's. Yeah, right. <laughs> I know we've been criticized for getting off subject, but did remember that time that we had like 40 boxes delivered to the radio station of coupon books? for Wendy's breakfast when they were trying to launch Wendy's breakfast? Yeah. How much yeah, Wendy's I, I breakfast just, did you eat during that period? Because I ate so much. I mean, it's it's really the thing with the radio biz is that you you know, you know you have to cut corners places and because you don't get paid any money. Yeah, you had, so. like, I did so many... I was explaining to someone today about how I, w- I was in radio when I got engaged and I couldn't afford anything and I paid like 150 bucks for a wedding ring because I was really young. And then, ironically, later in my radio career, I worked at a place where our only Christmas bonuses were gift certificates to a fancy jewelry store because that's how the jewelry store paid for their advertising. And so my wife actually has some really nice rings because I, for like three years in a row, I bought a really nice rings with, with cardboard, with freaking gift certificates. Oh, man, that's funny. So anyway, back to this radio contest that, that uh, Paul Pina is uh, entering. It's a local radio talent competition. We used to do one of those, too, where people would play cover songs. But anyway, let's, let's not, well, that's for another day. Uh, that's another day. He wins, and he gets to make a record. And they make 5,000 copies of it on vinyl, and, and it just very quickly goes out of print. Because, I mean, this guy's got an audience. He's been playing for three years in, in San Francisco with freaking Jerry Garcia. So one thing I read says that the studio lost the masters to this, but even that account mentioned that it's all very unclear what really happened. Um, but at the first, at, but at first, the fact that that record has disappeared isn't a big deal because Paul has kind of out of this. He signed a deal, and you know who he signed a deal with? Yeah, who? I, I want to see if you recognize the name Albert Grossman. Probably most famous as Bob Dylan's yeah. manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was a, he was a rec- he owned a record label. 
Yeah, and that's where that's where his relationship with Paul comes in. But I, it might be most easy to explain the type of guy that Albert Grossman was by telling another story very quickly that has nothing okay. to do with what we're talking about, and that is that Albert Grossman at some point, while managing his other big act besides Bob Dylan, an act called um, Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company. Okay. He discovers, he, he basically told them all that they could not use drugs. And then he discovers that Janice is using drugs. So you might think that what he would do is ask Janice to stop using drugs. But instead, he took out a $200,000 insurance policy on her for accidental death. Oh my God, that is so gross. And Murdoch, wow. he ended up getting to collect some of that money. It actually, it, it, there was a bizarre lawsuit about all of this after she died, but he ended up collecting over half of it. So let's just say Grossman could be his own episode of this show, and honestly, that may happen one day soon because he he is a real character. But I bring him up now to let you know that this guy, described by all as aggressive, and as you can see in this action uh, about Janis Joplin, and as you can actually see with your eyes in the Don't Look Back Dylan doc from the 60s, uh, this guy, he convinces Paul, who's like 22, 23 years old, to go into business with him. Because he's just started this record label, and that's what you mentioned, Bearsville, Bearsville Records. And let me tell you, things start out great. 1973, recording begins on New Train. This is going to be the second album for Paul. He calls Jerry Garcia and Merle Saunders in The Persuasions, and he gets the producer, Ben Sidron. They're all on board. Ben Sidron, producing this record. You know his name? You recognize that at all? No, it's a new guy for me. He's going to play a key role in this story, so just put a little put a little mark there. We'll come back to him. He's a session guy. He goes on to be a jazz guy, and he has a huge career. But early on, he was playing in England on Clapton Records and Frampton Songs, and he even played in the studio for the Stone Sum. So he's pretty accomplished. So this all-star cast is ready. They're going to create New Train, which is going to be the new Paul Pina record. And here things get a little unclear. No account I could find can speak to exactly what goes down. But at some point, Paul and his manager get into an argument with Albert Grossman. Not sure what the disagreement was about. Accounts vary. There are thoughts that it was the basic, like, I don't like where this is headed artistically argument. Um, This isn't going to be marketable enough argument. Or even that Grossman wanted Paul to move to the East Coast because he wanted him to be closer to where his office was or something. There's like some reports of that, and he wouldn't do it. Regardless of the initial conflict, what Paul and his manager missed is, A, they were not dealing with a rational person, and B, when they signed that deal with Albert Grossman, they had given him all the cards. Oh, that sucks. The fight became so intense that Grossman kicked Pina out of the studio canceled the album's release and ensured that Pina could never record at another studio. He remained contractually obligated to Grossman and was unable to record for another record label. And Pina wouldn't let him record for him. So as I said, he was literally kind of put on a full stop. Yeah, at being a professional musician because of contracts that he had signed as a 22, 23-year-old. Wow. Trying to get his start. And so... And he can't, he can't make 
he has like a non-compete where he can't make yeah. any music. Yeah, yeah, he is so tied up in legal contracts that he can't do anything. This is some real behind-the-music horror story stuff. The The idea that this kid had accidentally signed away all of his legal rights to his own creation, and then he has them taken from him completely out of spite by a guy who, over some argument that has not been recorded in history very well. Like, we're not even entirely sure. I can't find it anywhere. What Anyone that, re- that, that has talked about this story... And there's not tons out there about it. Uh, no one really knows exactly what the conflict was, but it doesn't seem to be anything like you would think would warrant that sort of behavior. And so what happens? Around the same time, Paul's wife gets sick, and he needs to, she needs a caretaker, and he's completely hamstrung. So he just quits. And one night in 1984, right before New Year's, he decides he wants to take a Korean language lesson and he gets out of shortwave radio. Oh, wow. So you might still be wondering why I'm telling you this story. There's one more piece of it that I've omitted. And this is the piece of what happens after Grossman throws his tantrum and shuts down the production. Remember, this was also a job for other people, including that producer. Remember I told you he was going to be important? Yeah, yeah. That old session musician? So before he went to England and did that session work that I talked about, he'd had a band with a buddy of his in college. And when he came back and was starting to do production work, this buddy of his, they got back in touch. And he was doing pretty well. And he said, hey, man, will you come and play keys in my band? So Ben Sidron has spent months working on this album. He has the rug pulled out from under him, and he's likely just devastated. But he has a copy of the record. So when he's hanging out with his bandmate, he's likely venting about this whole thing and probably trying to convince his buddies of how good Paul really was. And so he pulls out a copy of this record and he plays it for his friends. And he plays them one of the songs that Paul Pina wrote for this record that was specifically about an airplane trip. Do you remember when I told you he played, before he was on that Bonnie Raitt record, he played with the T-Bone Walker Blues Band? Yeah, which is amazing. And what an interesting guy. They used to have to fly him around to get to the gigs. And so he had to, his first, one, one of his early airplane trips was from Boston to Montreal. And when he was on that trip, he wrote a song about it. And that song made it on to this album. And so here has been sitting with his buddy whose band he's playing in and saying, just listen to how good this album was going to be. And he plays him this song. From New Train, right? From New Train. I'm ready for throat singing. Jet airliner. <laughs> right? And I've got to be on the run. Wow. Oh, 
Ben Sidron's college buddy was Steve Miller. It's so Steve crazy. Miller hears this song and says, oh my God, we have to record this song. Wait. So Paul's hamstrung, but the song's not hamstrung. So Steve Miller gets the deal to get the song and they record Jet Airliner. They change some of the lyrics, but they keep him as a writer. And I, you know, this is what wow. you, you, you got to wonder, right? Due to his, uh, how does a screwed over blind musician with a dying wife afford to eat, let alone develop an obsession with an obscure vocal technique in Tuva? How do you do that? How do you have money to do that? Royalties, baby. That's yeah. how you have money to do that. You Mail, get mailbox money. Mother yeah. freaking royalties. Paul Pina literally lived off the royalties of Jet Airliner. One song for most of his life. And oh due to his newfound fame from that documentary, his declining health, and the fact that mother freaking Albert Grossman died finally... In 2000, a new effort was made to get him out of all that legal crap. It had been going on for a long time. There had been lawyers trying to do it. They finally get it released. You can now buy New Train. It comes out in 2000. It was meant to come out in the early 70s. It comes out 26 years later in the year 2000. And on June 8th, 2001, all of this comes to a head. When Paul Pina gets the opportunity to go on a certain TV show, and that TV show is called Late Night with Conan O'Brien. <laughs> and here's the clip. All right, everybody, we are back. My next guest has enjoyed a fascinating career, touching on musical styles as varied as flamenco, the blues, and Tuvan throat singing. He also wrote one of the biggest pop hits of the 70s, which he's going to perform for us right now. Please welcome Paul Pina. Wow. I mean, obviously the links are in the show notes, and I highly suggest watching this. Just if for no other reason... Seeing a guy finally get his due. This is 2001. Paul is not in good physical shape. He's not been. He's fought diabetes and other things. I think he gets pancreatitis at some point. It's like not doing well. Uh, but he gets to go on national TV and play this song free and clear. And he ends up dying in 2005. Wow. What an amazing, beautiful career arc. Uh, it just absolutely a beautiful story. I'll tell you, you, you might ask, Brian, why are you like, how did you get to this story? Totally true. I was sitting in a bar by myself eating a cheeseburger in St. Louis, Missouri last month. And this song was playing in this, in this Irish bar. And I thought, man, I haven't heard Jet Airliner in forever by Steve Miller Band. And I thought, I wonder what the story on that song is. Um, and I'm uh, literally sitting in a bar by myself and I and I pull up the Wikipedia page and it says, this was actually written by a guy named Paul Pina. And I'm like, who's Paul Pina? And let me tell you, I went down a rabbit hole. And there you have it. That is the story of Jet Airliner. And, and I do want to say, while 
What a great story. I mean, this has been, this is so fascinating. And you learn something. Now, when you go to trivia and there is a question about the country in Siberia where they really value, uh, you know, uh, overtones in their singing, you have the answer. It's Tuva yeah. or Taiva. Tuva or yeah. Taiva. And we are celebrating a song, by the way, that has been played on the radio so many times that people don't even realize that a lot of times it's being played and it goes, that I don't want to get caught up in any of that funky shit going down in the city. <laughs> Big old jet. It like says shit in it. And for years, people have been playing that on the radio and like it's just kind of skirted by. Oh, man. Oh, man. I just, I love everything about this story. It makes me so happy to think about it. It makes me so happy to tell it. And I will tell you, I mean, I read quite a bit of, of stuff about Paul Pina while preparing for this. And there were people who were just, you know, giving their opinion about him and his record once it came out. But a lot of folks who are, who are fans say, you know, there's a strong argument that he would have been a massive superstar had that record come out. Like they, the comparison was Van Morrison. Like he would have been a wow. Van Morrison sort of character had that record been released, but instead he was pushed into a corner by a, by an angry white guy who got his feelings hurt over something. And um, the record didn't see the light of the day for 27 years. So absolutely insane. This is what keeps us doing this show, man. These stories that are just, just happen to be out there and uh, we've kind of missed them. So if you've got one you want us to look into, if you've heard of something like this and you're like, I wonder if that's true, uh, send us an email. It's we are the story guys at gmail.com. We'll be happy to look into it for you until next time. Murdoch, what should uh, we all keep doing? Keep telling stories. On your big old jetty ladder. Oh, won't you even carry me too far away? <laughs> Getting into that funky city. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.